It's good to have you here tonight as we continue in our Sunday evening series on why we hold to the King James Bible. I encourage you to go ahead and listen to the rest of the messages if you haven't heard them already and trust that it might be a blessing to you and might strengthen you in these days when the Bible is under great attack. Well, we're dealing with that part of the series where we are looking at quite a bit of history in relation to the translation of the English Bible, Uh, but we want to still frame the lesson with a scriptural thought, and so tonight we're looking at Proverbs 21 and verse 1 as a theme verse for tonight's lesson. And you might like to turn there or you can just follow it on the screen. But Proverbs 21 verse, 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water he turneth it, whithersoever he will. And that is what we see in relation to the King James Bible or the authorised version. We see God's hand at work in history and I really want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind as we go through these lessons on history. I want you to see God's hand is at work in history and God is moving in the heart of an earthly earthly king here, King James, to to commission uh, the greatest translation of the Bible into the English language. But let's pray and ask for, for God's blessing as we study together tonight. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of being here in your house. We thank you for those who have come on this hot summer's night. We just pray you'd give us all the capacity, uh, Lord, the heart and the capacity to be able to receive information tonight that would be helpful to us. Lord, we're thankful for the Word of God, and there is no subject more worthy of our attention than the Bible itself, for it is, for it is from the Bible that we get all, the, all of our beliefs. Uh, Lord, the whole foundation of our Christian lives, and Lord, Satan has sought to attack your word from the beginning. The very first recorded question of the devil in the Bible in Genesis 3 was, hath God said? And his attack against the word of God has continued to this day. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be equipped through this series to, uh, to stand for your word and to love it, to cherish it, to obey it, to study it and to have its words imprinted upon the very fabric of our hearts. So bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In our last lesson, we considered the five pre-KJV Bibles. We're looking at the history of the English Bible and and the uh, heritage of the King James. We looked at the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and also the Bishop's Bible. And these Bibles built on the pioneering work of Wycliffe, and especially the work of Tyndale, And they form a very important part of the heritage of the Bible in English. And the King James was really the crowning product of over 200 years of translation work in relation to the English Bible. And the result was an unrivaled masterpiece that has stood the test of time. And so in this lesson, we want to start, we want to commence studying the history of the King James itself. We've been working our way up to it. We looked at Wycliffe, we looked at Tyndale, we looked at those other pre-KJV Bibles throughout the 1500s. Now we come to the early 1600s and the King James Bible specifically, where we see God moving in the heart of the King of England at that time, James 1, to bring about this wonderful project in the English Bible. And in tonight's lesson, we're also going to get a sense 
for the spiritual and the academic environment of the times in which the King James Bible was translated and the qualifications of the translators involved. Through it all, we're going to see God's hand working in history. Keep that spiritual principle in mind. So I'm going to give you six headings tonight just to arrange our study material by way of an outline. Firstly, we want to think a little bit about King James I, a little bit of history about him. James Stuart was king, James VI of Scotland, before he became King James I of England. His mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, and James' father, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, died in mysterious circumstances shortly after James was born, and there is strong reason to believe from history that his own wife, Queen Mary, was behind the assassination of her own husband, a nice lady to be married to. And the Scots clearly believed that this was the case. It was the, it was the catalyst that turned the Scottish people against uh, Mary. They believed that she had collaborated with a very powerful nobleman, the Earl of Bothwell, and that together they had orchestrated the death of her husband. Suspiciously, Mary and the Earl married just a few months after Darnley was strangled to death. The Scots were outraged and turned against her. Mary fled to England and sought help from her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, and was imprisoned instead. And 19 years later, Mary was found guilty of participating in a plot to kill Elizabeth, and the 44-year-old former Queen was beheaded at Fortheringhay Castle in 1587. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but... We'll see. So James became king of England in March 1603 upon the death of Elizabeth. And he was the closest living relative of the unmarried and childless queen, being the son of Elizabeth's cousin. And he united England and Scotland under one reign, which I understand was for the first time. He married Anne of Denmark and together they had eight children, but only three survived infancy. And it's something I found actually studying even the lives of some of the, the translators. There was a very high infant mortality rate in those days. Often they'd have big families, but many of the children died in infancy. One of the King James translators uh, we'll come to later had a little girl, and uh, he, was, he really loved this little girl. She was named after his mother, and he said the bitterest night in his whole life was the night she died of the smallpox, I think it was. A very common thing. King James was known as the most educated sovereign in Europe. In spite of some of his physical problems, apparently he was constitutionally a little weak in in, in certain aspects, he had a very sharp mind. And, for example, by the age of seven, he was able to read a chapter of the Bible out of Latin straight into French. So he's translating on the spot, and next out of French into English. And before he was 20 years of age, he had translated 30 of the Psalms in metrical form and as a parallel venture had paraphrased the revelation of St. John. So it's interesting to me that God used this king. He, was obviously had, he obviously had an interest in translation and God was going to use him uh, to help uh, instigate this project. Now, King James was not a sodomite. He was not a homosexual as has been charged. How many of you have heard that argument against the King James? Some of you have. Be prepared for it. Some will say he was a homosexual. It's an absolute lie. He fathered eight children with his wife and he spoke fondly of his intimate relationship with her. 
There's no evidence of it. There was, it was an accusation that came later after James had died by someone who had been, I think he'd been a high official of James and James had demoted him. Okay, so he came up with this scandalous report. There's no evidence of it. He was a married man with eight children. In fact, King James wrote against homosexuality, calling it, quote, a horrible crime and lumping it in with witchcraft, willful murder and incest. So just be prepared and armed with that. When someone says, ah, the King James is a homosexual, you can say, sorry, that is simply not true. It was a slander uh, that was made by someone who had an axe to grind with James after his death. James himself wrote against it. Sadly, though, King James was not the greatest saint that lived, okay? And uh, the point, that's why I said we see God's hand working in history. God is working through a very imperfect monarch. Sadly, he did sanction certain persecution against some of the Puritans, um, and that's why uh, some of them fled uh, to America, I believe it was. The last man burned alive in England for his faith was Edward Whitman, a Baptist, on April 11th, 1612. And you have to understand in those days, to be a a non-conformist was a dangerous thing. And by non-conformist, we're referring to someone who is outside the state church. Okay, State churches have a notorious history of being persecutors. When you get political and religious power welded together, it inevitably results in persecution of those who do not conform to the national religion. And that is why, as Bible-believing Baptists, we believe in the separation of church and state. There are three biblical institutions, the home, the church, and the government, and each has its jurisdiction, and maintaining a distinction between them is vital. But understand, back in those days... Uh, you have you had a state church. You had the same. It used to be. It was originally the Catholic Church, then the Church of England, and to break outside of the state church was considered almost a crime. And uh, so we're not justifying James in that, but that was very much a part of the thinking of the day. And a lot of this was pushed by his bishops. He was under. He was influenced by the bishops in a, in a lot of that as well. We had a lot of power. Another Baptist was burned to death about a month before this, and others died in prison during. James reign. Now, does that discredit the King James Bible? No, because he wasn't the main translator. We just see God using this man, an imperfect man, um, but God used uh, his reign to bring about this marvellous project. So our faith is not in man when it comes to the translation of the Bible. God used men, certainly, but our faith is not in man. Our faith is in the great king, the king of kings and lord of lords, who is able to move in the heart of earthly kings. That's why we read that verse, the king's hand is in the heart, of the, uh, heart sorry, is in the hand of the Lord. And so God was moving here. Our faith is not in man, but in God. In truth, we could say it's not really King's, King James' Bible, it's God's Bible, okay? God's sovereign hand was working in history to give us the priceless treasure of his word in the English language. Now we come to the second heading, the Hampton Court Conference. It was at the Hampton Court Conference in 1604 that King James made the decision to create the translation. And this conference was held at Hampton Court and it was in response to a petition from the Puritans for spiritual reform in the Church of England. I believe there were a thousand signatories calling on James for reform in the Church of England, and so he convened this conference, and he actually stacked the conference against the Puritans. If you study history, I know the film portrayed it as 50-50 last week, but it wasn't quite like that. He had four Puritans, and then all the rest were bishops and other people, and he actually treated the Puritans with a fair bit of disdain from, from what we know of history. 
He liked the Episcopal bishops because they favoured the divine right of kings and some of these concepts. So he was more, uh, it was more it was in line with his desire for power um, as opposed to the Puritans who said, hey, you know, you're not above God or his word. But out of that conference, uh, the, the, uh, it was proposed by John Reynolds that a new translation of the Bible be commissioned and the king agreed. So that was something good that came out of that conference that God used. Here's a picture of the Hampton, Hampton Court Palace. It was a magnificent, whoop, magnificent royal palace on the Thames. And King Henry VIII spent time there with each of his six wives. The royal barge would travel to and from London and docked there. And Henry had an astronomical clock made, which not only kept the time, but also kept track of the tide so he could plan his river trips. There were tennis courts and bowling alleys, a vast pleasure, vast pleasure gardens and a 1,100-acre hunting park. You hunters would like that. The kitchens were massive, covered a 36,000 square foot square feet of space, or 3,344 square metres approximately, and could feed 1,200 people. And it's claimed that part of the conference, the Hampton Conference, actually was conducted in what was referred to as the Cartoon Gallery. And by that we're not talking about Snoopy and Charlie Brown cartoons. We're talking about depictions or paintings of biblical scenes. And so apparently some of the conference was conducted in that room. This is the king's throne canopy and this is the likely place where he sat and was petitioned by the Puritans and others. Now we consider the translation group. So having decided upon uh, the, uh, the need for a new translation in the English Bible, uh, there were translators selected who were the cream of the crop in the whole country for their academic achievements. To understand in those days to achieve a doctorate or to get it into a fellowship in one of the universities, it's not like today where they were just kind of handed around, you had to be the best of the best and there was a huge amount of competition to get into that higher echelon of higher learning. There was a lot of academic, um, uh, rigorous academic um, activity going on there and we'll get into that a bit later. So there were roughly 50 translators and they were divided into six companies, and each company was assigned a portion to translate. Two of those committees met at Oxford, two met at Cambridge, and two met at Westminster in the Jerusalem Chamber. There's a picture of Oxford University today, a picture of Cambridge University today, a picture of Westminster Abbey, and then a few pictures here of the Jerusalem Chamber where one of the groups would meet and there's the ancient fireplace and you can imagine 400 years ago there were men, over 400 years ago, men gathering in that room and working on the translation. Here's some more pictures of the Jerusalem chamber. A front picture there of the fireplace. Now here's a summary chart of the translation groups to show you what was going on. You had the two Westminster groups, so working from this side of the chart over, and there's the lists of those involved. And then this was the section of Scripture they were assigned. So the Westminster groups were assigned Genesis to Second Kings and the New Testament epistles. Then you had the Cambridge groups, again two groups. One group was assigned First Chronicles through to the Song of Solomon, the other group the Apocrypha. 
And then you had the Oxford groups, one group handling Isaiah to Malachi and another group handling, handling the Gospels to Acts and Revelation. So that's what was taking place. Each of these groups had to, uh, had to translate their assigned portion. Then once they had done that and there was a rigorous checking process, we'll talk a bit more about that later, uh, in the, uh, probably next lesson actually, then it, then it went from there to a committee of 12 men who did a, another final review, which I think for, went for about nine months. So it's an incredible process that, went, that this, the King James Bible went through. In fact, it means that every part of the Bible was checked at least 14 times, if not more, sometimes more, at least 14 times. It was a, it was a rigorous process and they were, they were seeking to achieve uh, the, the utmost perfection in relation to the translation. And then after that final review, and a lot of that apparently was reading the Bible and the scholars listening and making suggestions on how it could sound better. And it's very interesting actually to compare, for example, Tyndale, like you get a verse in Tyndale, the Tyndale version, the Geneva version, and then the King James, and to see the contrast in the beauty. The first two are good, but often the structuring of the sentences were a little bit wooden, um, and you come to the King James rendering, and it was just, they, they made sure it was... It was uh, done in the most beautiful way and they were really what they were trying to do was to convey in English the sense the accurate sense of the original languages so what you're getting really is the original languages in English um, of course with our grammatical structure but that was their aim and then from there it went down to a publication committee uh, which was headed up by, by two men Miles Smith and Thomas Bilson and then it went to the royal printer from there there were 15 rules for the translation that were drawn up by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Richard Bancroft, and I'll read those to you. Number one, that the basic text shall be that of the Bishop's Bible, which as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. Now, what's very interesting, and we've talked about this in the previous lesson, there was a bias on the part of the bishops towards the Bishop's Bible, and that was rule number one. As it turned out, the Bishop's Bible had a very small impact on the wording of the King James. In fact, those who have done studies uh, suggest about 8% of the King James wording comes from the Bishop's Bible, so only a very small percentage. As it actually turned out, they relied much more upon the Geneva uh, and, uh, and Tyndale and those other versions, and they were actually permitted to do that according to Rule 14. So even though there was that original bias towards the Bishop's Bible, in actual fact, Tyndale... Uh, had a much greater impact on the wording of the King James Bible in some places as much as 80-90%, whereas the Bishop's Bible apparently only accounts for about 8% of the wording. Number two, that proper names, including those of the authors of biblical books, shall be retained in the ordinary spelling as far as might be. Three, that the old ecclesiastical words such as church shall be retained. Four, that words of more than one meaning shall be used in the sense found in most of the ancient fathers, appropriate to the context and consistent with the analogy of the faith. And another note here, in addition to avoid any formalistic or stilted literary style, a variety of English words were used to render the same Hebrew or Greek word throughout the translation. And you can find that by doing a simple word study. You don't have to be knowledgeable in Greek even. You can use the Strong's Concordance, I can show you how to do it if you're interested and you can trace how one word in Greek has been translated in the King James. Now sometimes that it, uh, if, uh, it might just be one or two words used to translate that Greek word but sometimes you might have five or six different English words that they use for that one Greek word and what it really does when you study it out is it gives you the beautiful spectrum of meaning in that one Greek word 
right there in the uh, King James. So the King James has like an inbuilt dictionary, if you want to, an inbuilt way of studying the original words. You can look up those words and see the various ways they're translated and get a real sense for the full spectrum of meaning in those words. Most, it's a most masterful uh, thing. Five, that the chapter divisions shall follow those of the Bishop's Bible. Six, that no marginal notes shall be added except for the explanation of Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot be briefly, briefly and fitly expressed in the text. Seven, that cross-references shall only relate to relevant passages elsewhere in Scripture. And there were a lot of cross-references, I think about 10,000 in the original King James, and there to aid study, but making sure that they were relevant. Eight, that translations and revisions were to be done first by individuals, then submitted to the whole company for scrutiny, criticism and final approval. So you'd have translation, you'd have individuals within those groups working on parts of it, and then that was to be submitted to the whole group for it to be scrutinised, and then, as each section of the books were completed, they would be submitted to the other companies to be considered of seriously and judiciously, for His Majesty is very careful in this point. So they actually quote King James there, he, he was of great pains to say, okay, when you've completed your section of books, you are to then circulate those to the other companies for them to review. So you've got this rigorous checking process going on. I mean, there's nothing like it as far as a translation in history that I'm aware of, even in other languages. And there are good translations of the Bible in other languages, but nothing to this level of quality that we have in the King James. It's absolutely amazing. So you end up with every part of the Bible, every verse being checked as at least 14 times if you do the calculations between the various groups and things. So you've got someone translating and then that is submitted to the group they're in for their careful scrutiny. There's debates over how it can be best translated and then after they're completed their, uh, the particular book they're working on, it is then circulated to the other groups for them to scrutinise and check. Number 10, that if any company upon reviewing your book doubt or differ upon any place, they shall notify the original company. So if you're working one of the Cambridge groups and you receive the work from one of the Oxford groups and you felt that there was a problem with the translation, you could raise that. And if their objection was declined, then it would go to a general meeting. So there was a process there so it could be um, uh, appealed and it would go through that rigorous uh, sort of uh, situation. And from what I understand, they follow these rules. Some people don't follow the rules, but they follow the rules... Um, and hence we get the finished product. 11, that in cases of special obscurity, the translator shall be entitled to request assistance from any learned man in the land. So not only do you have approximately 50 men working on the translation, and a couple of them died early in the piece, but you've got roughly 50 men, they had licence to appeal to others outside of the translation committee who may, may have been experts in a particular field. And there is evidence from some of their letters that they did that. They, would, they actually appealed to certain scholars outside of the official group on certain words and things to get assistance. And so it's amazing. You've got even people outside of the official group having some input and bringing their expertise to bear on the translation process. Twelve, that each bishop shall seek the judgment of those among his clergy who are skilful in tongues upon the work at hand. So you were to... Uh, if someone was an expert in Hebrew, you would, uh, you would uh, consult with them. Thirteen, that the directors of each company shall be deans, the deans of Westminster and Chester and the Regis professors of Oxford and Cambridge universities. Fourteen, that the following translations shall be used when they agree better than the text, with the text in the Bishop's Bible. Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible. So because of that rule, they were able to appeal to those translations and as it turned out, they ended up relying much more on those 
the more godly translations, the more accurate translations from the Protestant Reformation than actually the Bishop's Bible, which was a more sloppy work. Fifteen, that three or four of the most ancient and grave divines from either of the universities and not employed in the translating shall be overseers of the work. That makes them more objective um, uh, if they're outside of the process and looking in and scrutinising. So you can see the kind of situation we have set up here. Now I want to talk for a little bit about the environment in which the King James was translated. What was the religious environment like of those days? What was the academic environment like? And it'll just help you to to get the picture of the the kind of atmosphere and the kind of environment the King James was translated in. The King James, I want us to think firstly about the spiritual climate of those times. The King James came out of a period of intense persecution and spiritual revival. Examples, we've studied them, men like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, John Rogers. So there was, uh, it was a time of, of great spiritual reformation and revival where people were prepared to stand for their faith. Not only that, but the general population was made up of a church-going people who were knowledgeable of the Bible. And it's hard for us to understand that in 21st century secular Australia, but back then in the early 1600s, most people in England went to church. In fact, they were required by the government to go to church. Now, I don't agree with that because worship should be voluntary, but that's the kind of environment it was. People went to church, people heard the scriptures read, and people, they weren't all saved, I'm not saying that, but people were far more knowledgeable of the Bible, which added a higher level of scrutiny because people were watching to see if they were were going to be biased in the translation. You've got the, 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 the Catholic debates going on, the Catholic Protestant debates, and so if they had tried to be very sneaky with their translation, it would have been called out very quickly. There was a lot of people with academic knowledge and a, a knowledge in the original languages in those days who could have jumped on it. And so there's, that's why they were so concerned for accuracy. In fact, there's a somewhat humorous story told about one of the translators, after, this was after the King James was completed, and he went with a friend to, a, uh, to attend a church service and a young man was preaching. And the young man spent the greater part of the message giving three reasons why the translators had got one of the words wrong and translated it wrong. And it so happened that uh, this translator went back to the same house for supper or something afterwards and he spoke to the young man and he said, now you gave three reasons why it shouldn't have been translated that way but we had 13 reasons against the three (laughs) as to why it should be translated that way. (laughs) So interesting. Um, David Cloud says concerning that time and his study of that time, it is doubtful that there has ever been a nation more steeped in basic Bible knowledge than 17th century England. The people were required to attend church, and at church they heard the entire Bible read and sung in the liturgy. I'm not saying that all the churches preach the truth, but you have a people familiar with the Bible, and much more God-fearing too. True Bible believers were prepared to earnestly contend for the faith even unto death. Then think about the literary climate, okay, the the state of language. By the 17th century, the English translation of the Bible had been through a rigorous process of refinement, and I've talked a lot about that. Quote, says Cloud here, the wording of the the King James Bible represents the labours of centuries of brilliant, believing, sacrificial, godly scholarship. Dozens of some of the best biblical linguists who have ever lived applied their minds and their prayers to translating into English precisely what the Hebrew and Greek text meant. Not only that, but at this time in history, the English language was at its apex. Alexander McClure observed, 
The English language had passed through many and great changes and had at last reached the very height of its purity and strength. The Bible has ever since been the grand English classic. It is still the noblest monument of the power of the English speech. It is the pattern and standard of excellence therein. It is the standard. That's why when they come out with a new version, which version do they compare it to? They always compare it to the King James. <laughs> That's a compliment to the King James, even though they're trying to run down the King James. They don't, if a new version comes out, they don't compare it to the RSV or the NIV. It's always better than the King James, or so the claim goes. The academic climate of the time was leaps and bounds ahead of where general society is today. It was a time of great emphasis on rigorous academic discipline. Large portions of scriptures were known by heart, very often not only by ministers, but also by laymen and children. A great emphasis on children memorising large portions and being able to quote large portions of the word of God. The Cambridge History of English and American Literature speaks about this. It says, English children from the earliest age were disciplined in prayer, in reading books of devotion and in close knowledge of Bible histories and Bible doctrine. Hence, we notice, psychologically, there would develop enormous industry in learning, endurance in listening to preachers, that's a good habit, isn't it, and, to, and teachers, tenacious memory and the power of visualising and concentrating the thoughts on Bible heroes, Bible stories, Bible language and Bible aspirations. Could I say that despite all the access to information we have today, we are living in an age of appalling ignorance in comparison. And what happens today is many wrongly conclude that access to information equals education. Now, access to information can facilitate education. Access to information can be a useful tool for education. But the fact you can do Google searches, watch stuff on YouTube and spend hours browsing social media does not mean you know a thing about true academic discipline. Does that sound harsh? It's true though, okay, the fact that you watch stuff and do Google searches does not mean that you actually are disciplined in relation to the study of the Word of God. And I say that because you have people today who watch some Yahoo on YouTube who probably has no qualifications, probably not even a spiritual person, you don't even know who they are, and they get filled up to the, 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 the top of their heads with foolishness and error because we're living in a day-to-day -day where every single person, it, you could be the most uneducated person, you can make a video and put it on YouTube and sound like an expert. Now, technology is great in that it allows us as, to spread the truth and if you can get tapped into the right kind of preaching and the right kind of teaching, that can be a great tool. So we're not, we're not saying that technology cannot be a tool. I'm just saying don't wrongly equate access to information and the fact you can get information quickly to academic discipline. Okay? Anyone can do a Google search. That doesn't mean that you are disciplined in study. Okay? But back then, there was rigorous discipline and I would suggest... In fact, I would say that as believers, since we have an evidence-based faith, since God has revealed his word to us, we need to learn to be disciplined and studious people. Amen? Amen. We do need to be in this age of ignorance, but unfortunately today... Oh, in fact, someone challenged me over the Israel issue a little while ago because of what we put on the sign, and I challenged them, said, where are you getting your information from? I saw some videos on YouTube. 
Thank you. <laughs> Read. Do proper research. Don't just watch stuff um, and uh, so on. You notice most of those phones are Androids, I think, but there you go. Okay. In my view, we need to have an emphasis on education and in my view, home education is the best method in our day to not only achieve spiritual outcomes but academic outcomes as well. Now, if you're not able to, and I understand some can't, uh, well, that's, uh, that's not always your fault. Um, I understand that not everybody can do that. But I do think in the day and age in which we live in, where the education standard is coming down, down, down in the, in the main system, it is an opportunity to not only impart spiritual knowledge, which is most important, but also to get better ac academic outcomes with a lower student-to-teacher ratio. Uh, but it's got to be done properly. Okay? Put your heart into it and see education as important, not just something that has to be ticked off the box. And think very carefully as parents today about handing your child's precious multiple brain to godless teachers. Think very carefully about that. The Bible says in Colossians 2 verse 3 that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think about it. If you miss Christ out of the child's education, you've missed the jewel and the crown. You've missed the heart, you've missed the soul, and you've missed the goal of true education. Now, maybe you got saved later in life, and that's all water under the bridge. You can trust God with that. Make up for some lost time. Teach your family the word of God. If you do find yourself in a position where you can't physically do home education, then you're going to have to be prepared with the word of God to counteract what they're getting taught. And keep, you're going to have to learn to ask, what did you learn today? What did the teacher say? And take the word of God and make the word of God at the home a place of instruction and get your kids into church. But I do think that's something to think about uh, tonight as we think about training young minds. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So, children need to learn the discipline of sitting through a whole sermon. Very important. Just thinking about this, I was just going through this and thinking, wow, you know, the emphasis... Maybe it was an overemphasis, but I think it's important. There was that, that emphasis on training the mind and discipline and learning and having a passion for learning and teaching children from a young age to know the discipline of sitting through a lengthy sermon and, and, and taking things in. So we need to be a disciplined people and a studying people and not follow the trend of foolishness in the world today. understand if a child is young breastfeeding infant but as children grow they should learn the discipline of sitting through a service even when they're young they can sit still for a solid hour and watch a video no problems so that was the time academic climate in the universities theology was the chief subject and and that sounds amazing when t today <laughs> that is certainly not the case and any university that teaches theology it's usually the most putrid form of liberal theology you can imagine that denies the resurrection and denies everything that's biblical but in those days theology was seen as the queen of the sciences it was the, the, the it was the grandest uh, pursuit it was the it was the highest form of study and knowledge there was a strong emphasis in those days on learning Hebrew and Greek so 
So the Bible uh, did have an influence, not to say there weren't dangerous ideas being floated around, but at least back in the 1600s there was a, a fear of God and there was an emphasis on studying theology. You know what Martin Luther said about universities in the Bible? He said, I'm much afraid that the universities will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labour in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. Tell you what, he was right. Universities today on the whole have become the great gates of hell. How many young people who've grown up in Christian homes have gone through secular university and come out the other side atheists, thrown away their faith? I'm not saying it's not God's will for some to go through university, but you need to know you're there by God's will and you better have a strong walk with God and be prepared to do some battle in the mind over what's being taught. You know, a lot of the, the vile things we see in popular culture today started in the think tank of universities. That, that's not a, that's not a, I'm not making that up, that, I can, that can be proven. A lot of this transgenderism and other things, it starts maybe even several, a couple of decades ago, it's in the think tank of the universities. A lot of, the, a lot of the, those ideas come out of the sewer of university, academia. The translators represented the best biblical scholarship in the world. And they were also godly men with few exceptions, who loved the Bible and who trusted the Holy Spirit to guide them. Not all the translators, probably not all the translators were born again, but at the very least, they were men who had a high respect for the Word of God, a high reverence for God and saw their responsibility to accurately translate the Word of God and not add to the Word of God or take away from it. That's the kind of people you want. You don't have that kind of attitude on the whole today um, in the academic world. Alexander McClure, in his book Translators Revived, written in 1855, said it is confidently expected that the reader of these pages will yield to the conviction that all the colleges of Great Britain and America, even in this proud day of boastings, could not bring together the same number of divines equally qualified by learning and piety for the great undertaking. He was saying that in 1855, how much more today? I don't think you don't have a group of men like this today. Not in the translation world, no way. They were giants of scriptural scholarship, a biographical history of all who had part in the translation might be an effectual antidote, said one here, Arthur Cox, to the itch for superseding their work which seems to trouble so many in our days. He was writing in 1857. And here's a key difference. Unlike today, these men grew up with the biblical languages and Latin. They learned these in their childhood and perfected the use of them throughout their lives, and this is not true today. Even those who are scholars today in biblical languages don't usually begin to learn them until their adult years. So there's no comparison. You say, well, this person's an expert in Hebrew and Greek. They probably learned it as an adult, and therefore they probably know about that much compared to these men who learned it from a very young age. Academic climate was, was, was like this. In 1605, of the 6,000 volumes in the library at Oxford, only 60 were in English. So you had to be schooled in other languages, the great languages of Europe like German and, and Latin. 
um, and French and, and these other languages, Greek, Hebrew, in order to be able to study in the library. There, not many books were written in English in those days. Latin was the main language of education and some of the other great European languages like German. And then, of course, study of the original languages as well, Greek and Hebrew. Again, to give you a sense for the kind of academic climate that was around in those days, the recreational schedule at Oxford consisted only of one hour after lunch and one hour after supper. Undergraduates were expected to be at work at other times. So just two one-hour breaks, and other than that, all day you're expected to be involved in study. McClure says it was a time when the study of sacred literature, sacred literature, namely the Bible, was pursued by thousands with a zeal amounting to a passion. Is that the general feeling in our society today? <laughs> a passion to study sacred literature? No, not, not in the academic world anyway. Amongst Christians, hopefully, but, but not, not, not uh, in the academic world. David Cloud says such an atmosphere exists nowhere in the world today. It could be compared only to something like sports in which thousands compete earnestly from their youth to win a place on a professional team. So that's certainly the way it is today. You have people, will, you understand, to get into the higher levels of sport, you, you have to, it's highly competitive. Many people competing to get into that, those higher levels of sport. Well, that's how it was back in the academic world in England there was tremendous competition and, and tremendous uh, incentive to try and compete with others and to, to, to achieve a high academic um, level. The King James translators as a whole were masters not only of Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek and Latin, but of all the cognate or associate languages that are necessary for research into ancient documents relative to the Bible. These include Persian, Coptic, Syriac and Chaldee. So that gives you a little bit of a sense for the environment of the times. And that, that does affect things. It, it, you're not going to get... It's, it's very hard, um, if not impossible, in today's academic world to get that because it's, it's just riddled with so much scepticism. Now, the Trinitarian Bible Society are doing some good work in other languages trying to make sure that they have accurate Bibles based on the Texas Receptus, and that's good. If you're looking for an accurate Bible in another language, go to the Trinitarian Bible Society website. They only publish the King James in English and then other faithful, uh, um, and faithful, other faithful translations based on the TR in other languages like French and, and, and German and so on. But the general world of academia is very riddled today with scepticism, and especially the modern translation um, world. So let's think sixthly tonight and lastly about some of the translators, just to highlight the kind of academic credentials these men had. And we're just going to briefly consider eight examples out of the approximately 50 translators. And the first one here is Lancelot Andrews, and uh, some of you may have heard that name, very famous man on the translation committee, he mastered 15 languages. I let that sink in. Most of us are struggling with one. <laughs> and it was said, such was his skill in all languages, especially in the Oriental, that had he been present at Babel, he might have served as interpreter general. <laughs> okay. um, he just knew so many of those ancient languages. 
And as a pastime, during his vacations, this is how he'd spend his vacation. He would find a master, says McClure, from whom he learned some language to which he was before a stranger. In this way, after a few years, he acquired most of the languages of Europe. He must have had a phenomenal mind, because I understand he would have about a month vacation and learn a new language in that month. That's quite a holiday, isn't it? He was also a spiritual man. There seems to be good evidence that he was born again, preached the same gospel we preach. On trips to northern England, sponsored by the Earl of Huntington, he saw many converted to the word of God through his preaching. And Alexander McClure says that he was called the star of preachers. He's a powerful preacher. He spent many hours each day in private prayer and devotion. I read this week that it was about five hours a day in devotion and prayer. And his written devotions were translated from Latin and are still in print, apparently. I haven't found, looked them up, but apparently they are. Here's a memorial plaque to Lancelot Andrews in Winchester Cathedral. It says, Lancelot Andrews, 1555 to 1626, Bishop of Winchester, 1618 to 1626, Preacher, Pastor, Man of God, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us, that in thy light we may see light, the light of thy grace today, the light of glory hereafter. He was buried in South Walk Cathedral in London. So these are the kind... These are the, the, the kinds of men who are on this project, men who are well qualified. And that's where it really annoys me. You know, someone's just studied a little bit of Greek and they want to correct the King James. And these men were giants. You know about that much. I know about that much compared to men like that. Let's just be humble and it just, just accept it as accurate, okay? Then you have Miles Smith. He was an expert in Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac, Latin, Greek, and Arabic. And apparently these were as familiar to him as his own mother tongue. And this man, Miles Smith, was the man most involved in the translation. He was in the Oxford Old Testament group. He was then a part of the 12-man revision committee at um, Stationers Hall. And then he worked finally with Bishop Bilson in the final compilation prior to the Bible's first preaching. And it was Miles Smith who wrote the translator's preface to the authorised version the dedicatory epistle to King James was penned by Bishop Bancroft. A fellow bishop called him, quote, a very walking library. Such was his phenomenal mind. He lost some of his children in infancy and there's a tomb there to his daughters and I forgot to look up which cathedral that was in. Then we have John Boyce, another man. He was taught by his father John and could read the whole Bible in Hebrew at age five. Not the whole Bible in English, the whole Bible in Hebrew at age five. He was admitted to Cambridge at age 14, and very soon afterwards would correspond with his tutors in Greek. <laughs> so these men were, clearly some of these men were geniuses, had more, above average minds, <laughs> and God used them. Um, I think it was either John Boyce or Lancelot Andrews who had to be just about forced to go out and play as a child because he just was addicted to study. Uh, my kids aren't like that, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, you got the, the maths problem, I can't do it. Yes, you can. <laughs> You've got to try. Okay. Boyce was an exact, exact grammarian who had read 60 grammars. It's not a little booklet. These are big, thick grammars. So he knew his grammar. <laughs> 
There was a lot of emphasis on grammar in those days. Even in his old age, a lot of grammar schools. Boys spent eight hours in daily study. And apparently it was a common practice for the young enthusiasts to go to the university library at four o'clock in the morning and stay without intermission till eight in the evening. Now these are the kind of... This is the, this, this is the, this is the calibre... Of the, uh, the kind of, uh, of the kind of men who were involved in uh, the translation of our Bible. His mother, Mirabel, was a godly woman who had read the Bible through 12 times and the Fox's Martyrology two times, besides other books, not a few. And he was about 37, 37 years old when he married a vicar's daughter, and the way he married her was interesting. The vicar of Boxworth, Mr. Holt, left in his will an unusual request. His request was that he wanted boys to succeed him as vicar on the condition that he would marry his daughter. So he visited the lady and taking a liking of each other, they married. So good on you, Mr Holt. John was so consumed with his studies, he left financial matters to his young wife. Unfortunately, she didn't know how to handle money and they quickly got into debt and he was forced to sell a very valuable and much-loved library which strained their marriage but in the end, they ended up living in great happiness and affection for 45 years. And I believe he was the one who lost quite a number of children in childbirth, uh, or in infancy, I should say, uh, two of them to the smallpox, one called Mirabel after his mother. And he said that was the hardest night of his life. Up to his death, apparently, his brow was unwrinkled, his sight clear, his hearing quick, and head not bald. It's not bad, is it? Some of you definitely aren't in that category. Um, <laughs> And when he was asked the secret of his longevity, he ascribed it to three rules. First, always study standing. Second, never study in a draught of air. And third, never go to bed with cold feet. (laughs) Now, whether those were the contributors to his long life, we don't know, but he was also a fitness fanatic. He was a fit man, kept his mind and body in good shape. Then we have Thomas Bilson, again, just illustrating the kind of men who were working on this Bible. Anthony, Anthony Wood proclaims him as, quote, so complete in divinity, so well-skilled in languages, so read in the fathers, so judicious in making use of his readings, that at length he was found to be no longer a soldier, but a commander-in-chief in the spiritual warfare. Another one, William Bedwell was the best Arabic scholar of his time. In fact, as I understand it, even the current Arab uh, the, the written language owes something to him and his work. He was a, um, a very skilled scholar in Arabic. To, be, to Bedwill, says McClure, belongs the honour of being the first who considerably promoted and revived the study of Arab, the Arabic language and literature in Europe. Then we have Henry Saville. He was one of the most profound, exact and critical scholars of his age. He was the first to edit and complete works of Chrysostom, and he was also an expert in mathematics and astronomy. And this man loved his study and loved his books. In fact, he was so much of a bookworm that his wife felt neglected. And one day she said to him, Sir Henry, I would that I were a book, and then you would have a little more respect to me. A person standing by said, Madam, you ought to be an almanac that he might change you at year's end. Apparently, his wife was not impressed with that joke. She was quite upset, apparently, about it. That's kind of funny. (laughs) Okay, Lawrence Chatterton is another one. He was thoroughly skilled in Latin, Greek, 
Hebrew, French, Spanish and Italian and was thoroughly acquainted with the writings of the Jewish rabbis. He grew up in a staunch Roman Catholic home and his wealthy father wanted him to be a lawyer but upon being converted to Christ in 1564, Lawrence abandoned his law studies to attend Christ's College, Cambridge. When he wrote to his father to request some assistance, the old papist wrote, Son Lawrence, if you will renounce the new sect which you have joined, you may expect all the happiness which the care of an indulgent father can assure you. Otherwise, I enclose a shilling to buy a wallet. Go and beg. Well, when Lawrence replied that he would not give up his faith in the word of God, his father did disinherit him of the larger state. But by God's grace, he never had to beg, Psalm 37.25. As a young man, Chatterton began a series of afternoon sermons at the Church of St. Clement's, Cambridge, that continued for 50 years. Sermons were timed by an hour glass which stood beside the pulpit. And Chatterton's biographer tells how once, having preached for two hours, fearing he had worn out his listeners' patience, he stopped. But the entire congregation cried out, we beg you, go on. (laughs) I like that congregation. Chatterton continued for another hour. I doubt I'm as good a preacher as Lawrence Chatterton, but there you go. You see the appetite there, though, in that time? Sitting under a man who's preaching and imparting knowledge, two hours. He says, I think I better stop. They say, please go on, goes for a third hour. Well, when he announced that he was retiring from those lectures, 40 of the clergy who said they owed their conversion to his preaching begged him to reconsider. So there are a significant amount of ministers in the Church of England who owed their salvation to this man, humanly speaking. Chatterton is buried at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Then we have John Reynolds. And John Reynolds was the leading spokesman for the Puritan Party within the Church of England and it was his suggestion for a new unbiased translation at the Hampton Court Conference, which led to the AV, the King James Authorised Version of 1611. It is said that his memory was little less than miraculous. He could readily turn to any material passage in every leaf, page, column and paragraph of the numerous and voluminous works he had read. He came to be styled the very treasury of erudition, and that word erudition means extensive knowledge acquired chiefly from books, and was spoken of as a living library and a third university. So there were some great minds um, working on this project. Apparently, John Reynolds was party to a most curious episode, according to Ian Paisley. He had been an ardent Roman Catholic, and he had a brother who was an equally ardent Protestant. The story goes that they argued with each other so earnestly and persuasively that they each convinced the other, the Roman Catholic became a Protestant, and the Protestant became a Roman Catholic. It's a shame they didn't both just become Bible believers, wouldn't you say? John Reynolds' Catholic brother, William, taught divinity in Hebrew at the English College at Reims and probably assisted Gregory Martin in the translation of the Reims Douay Catholic Bible that was published in 1610. We talked about that last week. At the height of the popularity of Shakespearean productions, so remember, how many of you heard of William Shakespeare? Okay. Reynolds wrote a book against stage plays. His warning was plain and to the point. Listen to what he said about the Shakespearean plays of his day. Quote, They meditate how they may inflame a tender youth with love, entice him to dalliance, meaning sensual play, to whoredom, to incest, inert their minds and bodies to uncomely, dissolute railing, 
boasting, knavish, foolish, brain-sick, drunken conceits, words and gestures. Now, I just wonder what he would say of our digital age today when most children are watching things on their phones that would make a Shakespearean play seem almost saintly, saintly in comparison. Serious. I mean, it's just interesting, isn't it? And since there's no new thing under the sun, there were certain themes coming through those stage plays that were often very unholy or suggestive. And yes, wow, what powerful language against that. What would he say today in the pornography culture and the movie culture and all the stuff that Christians just watch without thinking anything? Hmm. Food for thought there, isn't it? Isn't there? There's an effigy of Reynolds in the chapel. Uh, that's a picture of, a, of, a, of, a, of an effigy of Reynolds in the chapel of Corpus Christi College in Oxford. And you'll notice he's holding a book in his hand. We're going to stop there for sake of time. The time's up. It's almost an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've got about another hundred slides. Are you sure? <laughs> um, we'll stop there. Okay. Uh, I remember studying one book in homiletics and said that sometimes the most spiritual thing for the preacher, sometimes one of the most spiritual things a preacher can do is be quiet and stop the sermon. So, or stop the sermon. Um, but no, it is important to have an appetite for the truth. And it's not about making a sermon long for the sake of being long. That's not what we're talking about. A sermon needs to be spirit filled. And if it ends up being half an hour or an hour and a half, the main thing is it's led of the spirit. That's what I always say. Um, but we should have the appetite where we, we're happy to sit through a long sermon and a solid hour or sometimes even a bit more and um, have that attitude to learn. It's, 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 it's a good discipline. You know, it's, it's a good discipline to be in church. It's a good discipline to be under sound, doctrinal, biblical preaching. And uh, it'll help you spiritually first and foremost, but it also will educate you. <laughs> this book is the is the book of all books for learning, because it's the word of the living God. So, the King James is a testament to the hand of God, as we conclude here, working in history. Remember that. And let's read it, study it, memorise it, love it, and most importantly, obey it. I stand with the King James Bible. Do you obey it? That's where it's hard, isn't it? Make sure you obey it, not just stand for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the Bible. We thank you for these great men who were used of you, Lord, in this process of translating the Bible. We thank you we can have confidence, complete confidence, Lord, in the trustworthiness of this precious Bible in our native tongue. We thank you it's translated from the preserved Greek and Hebrew texts, our Lord, by competent men, and we pray that you'd help us to love it, to read it, to study it. Give us that appetite to learn. Father, help us not to be lazy in this day of quick information, but to be truly studious, not to puff ourselves up in pride, Lord, but to be skilled in the word of God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Pray these things now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.